Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and violence. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On November 25, 1973, 42-year-old Albert DeSalvo was six years into a life sentence at Walpole Prison, an infamous Massachusetts penitentiary. He couldn't deny that he was getting sick of being behind bars, so that day, he used the jail's phone to call his former psychiatrist. Dr. Ames Roby picked up. DeSalvo spoke in quick bursts, telling Roby that he wanted to set the record straight. Less than a decade prior, DeSalvo had confessed to being the Boston Strangler. He told his lawyer in a recorded conversation that he perpetrated a series of at least 11 brutal murders across the city. But now, he wanted to recant his claims. He told Dr. Roby that he needed to clear his name. To make the story even juicier, He said he had new information about the Boston Strangler's slayings. The implication was clear. DeSalvo wasn't just innocent. He also knew who the real Boston Strangler was. Dr. Roby was all ears. But DeSalvo said they needed to talk in person. Once the psychiatrist made it to the Walpole Prison visitation area, DeSalvo would tell him everything he wanted to hear. But the doctor never got the chance to speak with his client. Mere hours after DeSalvo hung up the phone, he was found dead in his cell bed in the prison's infirmary. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our second episode on the death of Albert DeSalvo, also known as the Boston Strangler. Last week, we discussed the serial killer's reign of terror and how the police finally tracked him down. This week, we'll look at DeSalvo's time in prison and investigate his mysterious death behind bars. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. From your morning podcast to your afternoon playlist, State Farm knows you personalize your entire day. And that's why State Farm helps you personalize your insurance with the State Farm Personal Price Plan. It offers coverage options that help protect what you care about most at an affordable price just for you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices vary by state. Options selected by customer. Availability and eligibility may vary. After an arrest for a one-time burglary and assault in October 1964, Albert DeSalvo was released on bail, but not before his photo was sent out to police departments across six different states. 
Report after report began to come in, painting DeSalvo as a serial rapist and burglar. By November of 1964, 33-year-old Albert DeSalvo was wanted for a string of rapes and burglaries in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and Connecticut. When police could no longer hold off their suspicions of DeSalvo, they booked him. Authorities didn't know it yet, but DeSalvo had committed even more crimes than they thought. After a childhood defined by his father's abuse, DeSalvo grew into a violent adult. It's believed that between 1962 and 1964, he'd gone on a vicious rampage through Boston and strangled at least 11 women. He created uniquely cruel crime scenes and often arranged his victims' bodies in unnatural poses and left behind greeting cards for law enforcement. In January 1965, while awaiting trial for his charges, DeSalvo appeared to suffer a mental breakdown. Claiming to hear voices, authorities transferred him to Bridgewater State Hospital for psychiatric observation. DeSalvo became the most frightening criminal institutionalized at Bridgewater. But he certainly wasn't the only killer that called the facility home. One of the first people DeSalvo met at the hospital was 34-year-old George Nasser. He'd been arrested after murdering a gas station employee that past fall. The men clearly had something in common a propensity for extreme violence. So, perhaps unsurprisingly, they got along quite well. Nasser was charming, and he put DeSalvo at ease. They were often seen chatting in the Bridgewater common area. One day, DeSalvo had something he wanted to tell Nasser, something important. We can't be sure exactly what DeSalvo and Nasser specifically said, but their conversation might have gone something like this. All right, Al, what is it? Okay. Stick with me here. What would happen if a guy got put away for robbing one bank, but he really robbed a couple of banks? Like, let's just say, 11? You're telling me you stuck up banks? No, I'm not saying anything. I'm just asking. If someone gets locked up for one thing, and he actually did way more than the cops thought, what would happen? Enough with the games, Al. What are you trying to ask me here? You've heard of the Boston Strangler, right? At first glance, DeSalvo seemed like nothing more than a disturbed criminal with a big mouth. Now, it appeared that Nasser was seeing a totally different side of him. DeSalvo said he was the Boston Strangler, arguably the most prolific serial killer in the city's history. And perhaps because he spoke with such conviction, Nasser believed him. Nasser saw this as an opportunity. The Boston Police Department had set up a reward fund for anyone who helped them track down the strangler. If Nasser convinced DeSalvo to confess to authorities, he might get a cut of the money. Nasser put DeSalvo in touch with his lawyer, the infamous criminal defense attorney F. Lee Bailey. Bailey was known for securing favorable verdicts for defendants that were clearly guilty. According to Nasser, he was just the man DeSalvo needed. But the attorney seemed a little hesitant. Jailhouse confessions were frequent and oftentimes untrue. So Bailey got in touch with the Boston Police Department. He asked them to create a list of questions that only those who were intimately familiar with the crimes, that is, the police or the murderer, could answer. On March 6, 1964, Bailey arrived at Bridgewater Hospital with the questions in hand. He was determined to figure out if DeSalvo was taking him for a ride 
or if he was, in fact, the Boston Strangler. Patricia Bissett, does that name mean anything to you? Yes, sir. She was the sixth. No, seventh that I killed. Yeah, she was the one with the black jewelry box on her bureau and wrapped up Christmas presents on her bed. Anything else you can tell me about what happened at her apartment that day? Well, besides the obvious, I remember having a cup of coffee with me. I had to set it down on the floor while I, you know. I remember leaving and thinking to myself, dang, I think I left my coffee behind. Funny. Well, coffee cup left at the scene. That wasn't even in the papers. The conversation went on for hours. DeSalvo knew details about every victim, even going so far as to say what color scarf was beneath their sofa or what corner their bathroom was in. As far as Bailey could tell, the mystery of the Boston Strangler had been solved. DeSalvo was clearly the culprit. But before moving any further, Bailey thought of DeSalvo's wife and two children. The killer had been married to a German woman named Ermgart for 17 years. Throughout the Boston Strangler's reign of terror, Amgart never considered that her husband was a murderer. But once he was arrested in Cambridge, Amgart realized DeSalvo wasn't the man she thought he was. She took their children and fled nearly 2,000 miles away to Denver, Colorado. But F. Lee Bailey knew it was going to take much more than relocating to protect Amgart and her children. When word that Albert DeSalvo was the Boston Strangler got out, he would become public enemy number one, and no one close to him would be safe. Hello, Mrs. DeSalvo. My name is F. Lee Bailey, and I'm an attorney. I can't say much right now, but I just spoke with your husband. I know this may seem extreme, but I highly advise you to change your name. People are going to want to find you, and trust me, you do not want to play any part in this. Ermgart took the advice. She and her children disappeared, and their connection to Albert DeSalvo permanently dissolved. With that, Bailey officially signed on to be DeSalvo's lawyer. His goal wasn't to help the killer walk free, but rather to save him from the death penalty. Ideally, he hoped to keep DeSalvo in a psychiatric institution by convincing the judge and jury he was not guilty by reason of insanity. The state offered them a deal. If DeSalvo gave a formal confession, he'd only have to stand trial for his previous crimes, like rape and burglary. He could completely avoid being tried for murder. Bailey hoped that this, along with an insanity plea, could help DeSalvo avoid hard jail time. Unfortunately for Bailey, the jury wasn't convinced. In 1967, when DeSalvo stood trial, he didn't appear incompetent. He was eloquent, almost proud, as he pleaded guilty to his many crimes. The jury emerged with their decision after four hours. They all agreed that the insanity defense did not apply to DeSalvo. He was guilty of all charges, and the judge sentenced him to life in prison. DeSalvo returned to Bridgewater, where he awaited transport to prison. It seemed like he lost all hope. But about a month later, he was presented with an opportunity he couldn't pass up. In February 1967, two men approached DeSalvo in the Bridgewater common room. 
They were 40-year-old murderer Frederick E. Erickson and 35-year-old armed robber George Harrison. Erickson and Harrison had gotten their hands on duplicates of their cell keys and were planning a jailbreak. They caught wind of DeSalvo's bad luck and thought he'd be as desperate to get out of Bridgewater as they were. It turned out they were right. Coming up, Albert DeSalvo makes a break for it. This is Story Booth Daily. Tune into this new podcast for your daily fix of real life stories from real people around the world. We've received thousands of stories that we want to share with you from talking about being ghosted or realizing that being popular isn't all that great sometimes. No topic is off the table. This is a podcast that's not only for you, but by you. Story Booth Daily premieres November 8th, so be sure to check us out Monday through Friday. Story Booth Daily is a wheelhouse and Spotify original from Parcast. Now, back to our story. On the night of February 24, 1967, 36-year-old Albert DeSalvo met up with two other inmates at the Bridgewater State Hospital in Massachusetts. Their names were Frederick Erickson and George Harrison. Somehow, they'd managed to get their hands on duplicate keys that could open their cells, and they were planning a jailbreak. Around 2 a.m., DeSalvo heard Erickson and Harrison tapping at his door. He squinted out of his cell's peephole. DeSalvo watched as the two men inserted a shoddy piece of metal in the keyhole. After a few jostles, the heavy door swung open. The men needed to act fast. They had a measly 10 minutes to execute their plan while the guards changed shifts. So they scurried through Bridgewater's winding corridors until they arrived at their tunnel to freedom, an elevator shaft that was under construction. One by one, the men shimmied through the dusty and dilapidated tunnel. Once outside in the bitter New England cold, they just barely made it over the barricade. For a moment, all they could do was stand in disbelief. They were free. And they were ecstatic. But the rest of Boston wasn't nearly as happy. When word got out that the three psychiatric patients, including the presumed Boston Strangler, were on the loose, the city fell into a complete panic. Hordes of police officers armed with rifles and tear gas searched the area for the three men. While tracks in the snow led to the capture of both Erickson and Harrison, DeSalvo remained a fugitive. Freezing and exhausted, he roamed along highways and through thick backwoods until he arrived in the small town of Lynn, Massachusetts. He broke into a stranger's cellar to warm up and stole an old naval uniform to use as a disguise. Then he simply roamed the streets, formulating his next move. But it quickly dawned on him that there was no next move. His wife and children were gone, and they wanted nothing to do with him. Even if he did try to start his life anew, His face had been on the front page of every newspaper in the country. He had nowhere to hide. With no other option, he stepped into his shoe store and asked to use the phone. You got a phone? I, uh, yes, are you? Yeah, it's me. Now give me the phone. I gotta call my lawyer. Okay. Everyone in the shoe store knew exactly who he was. While DeSalvo dialed F. Lee Bailey's number, the clerk called the authorities. Minutes later, police descended upon the humble storefront. DeSalvo was detained. 
This time around, he wouldn't get the luxury of being placed in a psychiatric institution. He was headed straight toward one of Massachusetts' most infamous penitentiaries, Walpole Prison. At the time, Walpole was notorious for unmitigated chaos and guards who were willing to turn a blind eye for the right price. Although it was technically a maximum security institution, it was a distinctly unsafe environment. And at first, DeSalvo wasn't happy to be there. Soon, though, he was reunited with an unexpected face. George Nasser, his former confidant, had also been transferred to Walpole to serve out the remainder of his life sentence. In other words, DeSalvo already had a friend on the inside. The two got to talking. DeSalvo had a plan to turn his situation around, and he wanted Nasser's help. DeSalvo was working on a tell-all book about his many crimes. He believed people would jump at the chance to read the Boston Strangler's sordid story. Nasser agreed to assist DeSalvo in exchange for 50% of the profits. From that moment forward, DeSalvo and Nasser were attached at the hip. They churned out draft after draft of DeSalvo's book and frequently sent pages to publishing houses around the country. And although DeSalvo had found a collaborator in Nasser, the rest of the prisoners wanted nothing to do with him. In fact, he was a walking target. Sex criminals were considered the scum of the earth amongst the inmates of Walpole. Taking out a man like Albert DeSalvo would catapult a person to the top of the prison's social hierarchy. Plus, rumor had it that DeSalvo had dipped his toes into the prison drug-dealing game. Apparently, he was starting to break the rules. All right, DeSalvo. I'm going to help you out, and I hope you listen. Because this is what stands between you living and dying in this place. What are you talking about? You're not as smart as you think you are. Everyone knows you've been selling your own stuff, and that you've been undercutting Winter Hill's prices. They basically run this place, so you do not want to cross them. Oh, please. There's enough room for everybody. Those guys are a bunch of thugs anyway. I don't want anything to do with them. Well, you picked the wrong business if that's the case. It, try smuggling in food, booze, cigarettes. But speed? Yeah, that's spoken for. I'm serious, DeSalvo. Yeah, yeah. I'll figure it out. DeSalvo was never one to fall in line. Even though the Winter Hill gang controlled the prison drug trade, DeSalvo reportedly kept trying to get involved. Still, DeSalvo wasn't totally confident. He always slept with one eye open, and it wasn't long before living in fear started taking its toll. Six long years dragged on. DeSalvo had imagined his tell-all book leading to glory and fame, but no publishers wanted to tell such a disgusting story. DeSalvo was never going to be a big shot. He was only ever going to be a prisoner. And this realization left him desperate. Likely as a last-ditch effort to escape his fate, he started making plans to recant his confession. DeSalvo said he only ever claimed to be the Strangler in the hope of receiving financial compensation that he could use to help his family. It was a weak excuse, and no one really bought it. But then, in a letter sent to a friend from prison, DeSalvo claimed he had something to reveal to the public. It's time for a new ball game, as it's called. I've got to think of my children and the suffering and burden I've put on them. In time, 
You'll understand what I'm saying, or trying to say. It'll happen in about a month or so. I'm going to drop a bomb. Word spread around Walpole that DeSalvo was planning to reveal new information about the Strangler case. With the entire prison whispering his name, DeSalvo became more paranoid than ever. He stopped sleeping. He trusted no one. And for good reason. Inmates took DeSalvo's desire to speak out about his own crimes as a sign that he was becoming less trustworthy in general. They feared he might slide in some information about other inmates in hopes of getting preferential treatment. DeSalvo's involvement in the prison drug trade was also getting him some additional heat. He was allegedly selling his own supply of amphetamines at a lower cost than the top drug dealers in prison, namely the Winter Hill Gang. The tension between DeSalvo and the other inmates was palpable. Fearing for his own safety, he asked to be placed in the prison infirmary away from others. Then, on November 25, 1973, 42-year-old DeSalvo placed a phone call to his former psychiatrist, Dr. Ames Roby. Albert, is that you? Yeah, Doc, it's me. Listen, I gotta meet. We need to talk. It's been years. About what? I want to tell the real story. This has been going on for too long, you know? It's time that the truth comes out. Well, what is the truth, Al? It's not safe to talk here. Come down to Walpole. You can talk then. 9 a.m. Be there. But around 12 hours later... Before Albert DeSalvo could elaborate any further, he was found dead in the infirmary. He'd been stabbed at least 16 times in the chest. Coming up, speculations on Albert DeSalvo's death begin to circulate. Now back to the story. In the early morning hours of November 26, 1973, 42-year-old Albert DeSalvo was murdered in the infirmary of Massachusetts Walpole Prison. This was no petty prison murder. DeSalvo had been stabbed 16 times, and whoever killed him must have planned the ambush meticulously. Getting to the infirmary would likely require an in-depth knowledge of the prison's layout and cooperation from the guards. Even for a notoriously crooked prison like Walpole, the amount of corruption required to pull off a murder like this was astounding. To get to DeSalvo, someone, or perhaps multiple people, would have likely needed to bribe numerous authorities. Plus, by the time any prison employees found a salvo, he'd already been dead for 10 hours. This almost certainly required at least one, if not more, guards to turn a blind eye. In fact, it made it seem possible that jailers, and not just inmates, might have taken an active role in committing the crime. But of course, that raised the question of why? Inmates could have had any reason to target DeSalvo, from his well-known crimes to his supposed drug dealings to his generally bad attitude. However, it was far less clear why guards would be so willing to enable a murder. They might have had a personal agenda against DeSalvo. After all, he'd terrorized Boston for two years. That was reason enough to want him dead. But perhaps guards cooperated because the bribes DeSalvo's murderers offered were too good to ignore. 
and the only people offering bribes like that were members of the Winter Hill Gang. Eventually, three inmates at Walpole, Carmen Gagliardi, Robert Michael Wilson, and Richard L. Devlin, were arraigned for DeSalvo's killing. It's not quite clear how authorities zeroed in on these three, but Gagliardi, Wilson, and Devlin were all suspected to be members of Winter Hill. It's likely that their supposed gang ties led to their apprehension. They went to trial in the fall of 1974, but the proceedings ended with a hung jury. And before they could stand for a retrial in 1975, another death shocked Walpole. Carmen Gagliardi was found killed in his jail cell. Although he died of a heroin overdose, according to a report by the New York Times, it was ruled a homicide. Many believe that he met the same fate as DeSalvo, death by the Winter Hill Gang. Tensions were probably running high amongst gang members after the arraignment. If anyone from Winter Hill was convicted, it could spell doom for the entire organization. So if Gagliardi expressed any sort of guilt, or if he had considered confessing to DeSalvo's murder, his fellow gang members might have eliminated him before it was too late. Devlin and Wilson stood for a retrial on March 6, 1975. This time, the prosecution had a witness on the stands. He was a fellow inmate named Kenneth W. Jackson, and he had a lot to say. The day DeSalvo was found dead, I heard Wilson and Devlin talking. They weren't even trying to hide it. Wilson said, by the end of the week, DeSalvo will be eliminated. He said the same thing to Gagliardi. Ask anyone at Walpole. They're all going to tell you the same thing. As compelling as this testimony was, the jury remained undecided due to a lack of physical evidence. Ultimately, no one was ever convicted of Albert DeSalvo's murder. But the major players on DeSalvo's legal team felt certain they knew what had happened. F. Lee Bailey stated that DeSalvo's death was a direct result of his involvement in the drug trade at Walpole. If Devlin, Wilson, and Gagliardi really were in the Winterhill gang, that meant they controlled the prison's amphetamine ring. The gang took notice as DeSalvo rose up the prison ranks, and they weren't happy when he started selling amphetamines below the established price. The gang is believed to have given DeSalvo a firm warning, one that most other inmates would have taken seriously. However, Albert DeSalvo never paid attention to orders, and at Walpole, there were no second warnings. Winter Hill might have opted to kill DeSalvo rather than let him cut into their profits. While this is the most widely accepted theory behind DeSalvo's death, others thought his murder was related to the Boston Strangler's true identity. Many believed his original confession was false and that it was all part of the real Strangler's master plan. They thought DeSalvo was being used as a puppet, and the man pulling the strings was George Nasser. Some claimed that from the start, Nasser had clear influence over DeSalvo's decision to confess. In their eyes, it was possible that Nasser somehow convinced DeSalvo that owning up to the Boston Strangler murders, even if he was innocent, would be good for both of them. Reward money was on the table, People speculated that although Nasser wanted to keep the cash for himself, 
he could have also promised DeSalvo a cut. As the theory goes, DeSalvo would have no use for the money in prison, but he might have planned to wire the funds to his wife and children. Some thought this idea made sense, but in a 2018 interview, 86-year-old George Nasser denied having any involvement in the Boston Strangler crimes. He vividly recalled DeSalvo's jailhouse confession and said he was absolutely certain that DeSalvo was the Boston Strangler. Officially, George Nasser can't be tied to the strangulations. However, there is one story that can't be ignored. A woman named Marcella Lulka lived in the same apartment building as the Strangler's sixth victim, Sophie Clark. In Gerald Frank's book, The Boston Strangler, he writes about how moments before Clark was murdered, a strange man appeared at Lulka's door. He said his name was Mr. Thompson, and he was there to paint her apartment. She knew something was off, so she shooed him away. A few weeks after her initial testimony, police called her into the Bridgewater State Hospital. Officers hoped she could identify DeSalvo as the man who came to her apartment. She posed as a visitor in the common room and watched the inmates file in. Her face went pale and the hairs on her neck stood up, but not because she recognized DeSalvo. She said she recognized Nasser as the man at her apartment. But still, Lulka couldn't definitively say that he was the man who tried to enter her apartment. Besides a few bizarre coincidences, there's no substantial evidence linking George Nasser to the Boston Strangler killings. Plus, Nasser had his own take on the DeSalvo murder. He claimed DeSalvo had gotten into an argument with a particularly dangerous group of inmates over the cooking of bacon. Things escalated, and he was killed. Killing over bacon might seem extreme, but according to Nasser, that sort of thing wasn't uncommon at Walpole. Even so, the evidence for this theory is thin. DeSalvo's killing seemed far too pointed and methodical to be the result of a disagreement over breakfast. With this in mind, I think it could have been someone from the Winter Hill gang. They would have had the power to bribe officials and break into the infirmary. I agree. Plus, Carmen Gagliardi's murder seemed to show that gang members wouldn't hesitate to kill those who fell out of line. If DeSalvo crossed them, they could have taken him out. Whatever happened to Albert DeSalvo, his death caused the investigation into the Boston Strangler's murders to go cold. Because DeSalvo never pleaded guilty to the Strangler's crimes in court, nobody was ever formally charged. Thus, the string of slayings that terrified Boston from 1962 to 1964 remained technically unsolved. So in 2000, relatives of Mary Sullivan, the Strangler's youngest victim, exhumed her body. A second autopsy was performed, this time using new genetic technology. The re-autopsy led to the discovery of traces of semen on Sullivan's body. And in 2013, the DNA was found to be a direct match to Albert DeSalvo. With that, Mary Sullivan became the first of the Boston Strangler's victims definitively linked to Albert DeSalvo. This didn't confirm that he was the Strangler, 
but it certainly made it look very likely. Plus, police have stated that they hope to find DNA evidence to connect DeSalvo to the Strangler's other victims. It's possible that at some point, we'll have concrete evidence of his guilt. Until then, Albert DeSalvo's ghost hangs over Boston. We don't know exactly who murdered him, and we can't be 100% sure who he killed. All we know is that after the Boston Strangler's reign of terror, the city was never the same. again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with another episode. For more information on Albert DeSalvo, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Boston Strangler by Gerald Frank extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Spencer Fox, with writing assistance by Karis Allen and Giles Hofseth. Fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Harris Markson, and Cameron Nicod. Unsolved Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. This is Story Booth Daily. Tune into this new podcast for your daily fix of real-life stories from people around the world. Story Booth Daily premieres Monday, November 8th on Spotify. Story Booth Daily is a wheelhouse and Spotify original from Parcast.